Well, the title of today's sermon is taken straight from that last hymn that we sang, uh, Then Sings My Soul. Probably one of the most familiar lyrics in all of uh, church hymnody, uh, church music, a song that uh, all of us, I think, have, have sung. If you grew up in the church, you've been singing since uh, you can remember. In fact, that was the song, that last song, um, How Great Thou Art, was a song that Kelly and I chose to uh, sing at our wedding, and uh, not a duet, mind you. That would have wrecked our wedding, at least my part would have. Um, but uh, we sang it as a congregation because we were wanting just to give him the honor and the glory, and it was, about, it was all about him and not us. And uh, we wanted everyone to know that uh, the focus was, was him. And, and so I want to talk with you about this, this phrase, this idea, this truth, then sings my soul. As Chris mentioned um, Kelly and I, and uh, he and his wife had a chance to uh, go to this um, worship conference. It was the first annual Getty worship or Getty Music Worship Conference in Nashville, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that. The name Getty, Keith and, and Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Getty, just a godly gifted couple from Ireland, who are modern day hymn writers, song leaders. Uh, whose ministry has blessed churches around the globe, including ours. In fact, some of our, our favorite songs that we, we sing together were written by the Gettys. The Power of the Cross would be one of them. Uh, Speak, O Lord, and of course, probably they're most well-known for In Christ Alone. Uh, some of you may remember several years ago, we had the honor of, of having the Gettys actually here uh, with their band on a Sunday morning over in our old worship center, and they actually led worship for us uh, on, on Sunday morning, and uh, as we were um, sitting in the Grand Old Opry this last week and enjoying their concert that they were putting on, and I turned to Kelly and I said, well, I guess those days of having the Gettys at Lakeside are over, right? <laughs> They've outgrown, uh, you know, our little church, and so, but what a joy, what a blessing to have them here. That's part of our rich heritage uh, as a church, and um, uh, all the all the, all the skinny jeans aside that I saw at this conference, because it was geared towards musicians and worship leaders, and it seems that's kind of how, that's the cool way to dress these days. Chris, thanks for not wearing skinny jeans, brother. Just appreciate that. But I mean, if you have to, I, I can appreciate that. You know, it's part of the, the, the worship culture, it seems, these days. But um, the, the conference was really designed to encourage and, and equip senior pastors um, and music ministers and musicians in, in their vital role of leading their congregation to sing with biblical depth and passion. It wasn't geared towards, hey, let's get the music leaders and help them do a better job doing this. It was, no, how to help our congregations do this uh, that we just got done doing, that we spent a lot of time doing whenever we gather together. Have you noticed that? We, we always seem to have some time in the Word, and we always have some time of singing. Have you, have you heard that? Have you, have you figured that out? Preaching and singing, that's pretty much uh, the mainstays here at Lakeside Bible Church. Well, there's a reason for that. And uh, I, I wish you could have been there to hear how beautiful and, and how powerful it sounds when 4,500 musically gifted people sing at the top of their lungs and from the bottom of their hearts. And, and I'll just 
confess to you, most of the time I didn't even sing. Because I was just standing there going, wow, this is like, it was like one big choir. They had a choir up on stage, yeah, but it was like one big choir. It's like all these people know how to sing and they're singing parts. And I mean, it was just a beautiful thing to experience. And I think it was a, a great example to me of what it looks like, what it sounds like to worship God in spirit and in what? Truth. John chapter 4. That's what Jesus said, that that's what the Father desires. God desires us to worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, with our, 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 our hearts, that's the spirit, but in truth, that's our head. We need to worship God with our heads and with our hearts. And so these folks who were there were not just emoting, but they were contemplating biblical truth as they sang. Their fervency was based on and flowed out of their sound theology. I was reminded of the Puritans of old. Their theology informed their minds and it inflamed their hearts. And the Puritans have been characterized by many as theology on fire. And that was the sense I got this week, that that, that was, um, this whole conference was like theology, good theology, um, being sung uh, in, in beautiful music. And, and I was personally humbled and, and convicted by how passionate, how, how joyful these people were in singing about what God had done for them through Christ's life, his, his death, his resurrection. I mean, I, they, I, I was moved by how grateful they were, how glad they were for the gospel. I mean, they were, they were truly amazed and excited about their salvation. And uh, I was also reminded that while I'm not giftedly or gifted musically, that as a pastor, I, along with the other pastors and elders at our church, are the ones who are ultimately responsible to, to, to lead wisely and proactively our, the ministry of music here at Lakeside Bible Church. Everything that goes on as it relates to our music ministry uh, has to be led by the pastor and by the elders. Why is that? Well, why, why would we make such a big deal about singing? Well, I think it's because nothing except for the ministry of the word plays a more significant role in growing and maturing a body of believers in the ministry of music. You've got the ministry of the word and you've got the ministry of music. And in fact, as we're going to see in a moment, they're really one and the same. You can't really separate it. Well, we just had our singing time and that was our time of worship, and now we're, we're going to have our time in the Word as if the worship ended, and now we're doing something different. No, the whole thing is worship. In fact, this is the climax of the worship service as we sit and we listen to, we worship the Lord by listening to Him speak to us and commit to doing what He's told us to do in His Word. One of the speakers shared this quote from Martin Luther. And uh, you know Martin Luther, he was the Catholic monk who uh, got saved, and uh, God used him to launch the Protestant Reformation. And uh, most people, what most people don't know about Luther, they know he was a man of the word, and he was a, a fiery preacher, but he was also a, a great hymn writer. 
In fact, he, he was the one responsible for returning congregational singing to the church because in those days, uh, there was no singing. There was just chanting, and it was all in Latin, and so the people just kind of sat there, and, and like everything else, they just observed the priest and, the, and everyone up on the stage do the, the thing, and they just kind of sat there and watched. And so Luther returned singing um, to uh, the church and uh, wrote a bunch of songs um, for the people to sing. And uh, he got in a lot of trouble because some of the tunes that he chose to match up with the lyrics were some of the songs that were being sung in the bars in his day. And uh, so he took a lot of flack for that. But the point was he wanted to get the church singing again. And this is what he said. Music is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents God has given us. Next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. Music is a fair and lovely gift of God, which has often wakened and moved me to the joy of preaching. And then he said this in typical Lutheran form. He said, I have no use for cranks who despise music. Music drives away the devil and makes people happy. It's a great line. He said, next after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. Experience proves that next to the word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governess of the feelings of the human heart. God is praised and honored, and we are made better and stronger in faith when his holy word is impressed on our hearts by sweet music. And hopefully that is your experience, that is our experience as a church that, that when God is, that, that, we, that we are made better, that your life is made better, you've become stronger in your faith when, or because of the fact that the word of God has been impressed on your hearts, not just through the preaching of the word, but through our singing and the songs that we choose to sing together. And as I mentioned earlier, the ministry of music is not separate. It doesn't stand apart from the ministry of the Word. It's part of the ministry of the Word. You can't separate the two. They're inseparably linked. And God designed music for more than just preparing people's hearts to hear the preaching and teaching of His Word. Typically, you think of a, you know, songs are just kind of setting the table. It's kind of the appetizer for the main meal. And so in some ways, they're kind of considered you know, not necessarily that important. In fact, there's actually some denominations that actually have no singing. They're, they're, they're all about, hey, let's just get into the Word. Well, I think God designed music not just to prepare people's hearts to hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word, but to actually preach and teach the Word in the process of the preparation for the sermon. In other words, the moment we sing the very first word of the first song that we sing whenever we gather for worship, the word begins to accomplish its work in our lives. Both songs and sermons are God-ordained means to train and equip us to live well, to suffer well, and to die well. I hope you could say that Sitting under the teaching of God's word here at Lakeside has, has, has hopefully helped you to, to live better and to suffer better and to hopefully die better. 
I hope you could say the same thing about the songs, the songs that you, that, that you have sung here, that, that you've heard here. Uh, hopefully you find yourself singing throughout the week, especially in moments of trial and suffering. A song will come back to mind and you'll begin to sing that song to the Lord in your heart. And so singing and, and preaching are this dynamic duo in the formation of God's people. And again, that's why we allot so much time for singing in our services. It's, it's second only to the time we allot for preaching. And I've told every one of our worship pastors, our music ministers over the years, uh, typically during the interview and hiring process, that, hey, just so you know, no one will have more influence in this church next to me than you. Because you're going to be up here on stage as much as I will be. And so it's very care- we're very careful to make sure that we hire a guy who is like-minded theologically and philosophically so that the, right, you don't have the preacher going this way and the music minister going this way and have some confusion. And so no pressure, Chris, right? But uh, we know whenever we hire a music minister, they will have a huge influence in the direction and the formation of our church. Now, typically, the singing serves the preaching. That's typically how it goes, right? We're singing and we're getting ready to, to preach, right? But this morning, it's my desire for the preaching to serve the singing. In other words, I want to preach about singing, okay? This is a sermon about songs. Why? Because singing songs prepares people for hearing sermons, but... Like I said, this sermon is designed to prepare people for singing songs. And um, in fact, that should be the result of every sermon that is preached because the deeper we go in the word, the higher we should go in worship. Worship is simply an overflow of our understanding of what the Bible teaches about who God is and and, and what he has done for us in Christ. In short, you want to know what worship is? Let me give you a, a, a short definition of worship. It's our response to the gospel. That's that's all that worship is. It's our response to the gospel. And so the duty of the preacher is to teach people about God and his great gospel, and from that will flow sincere worship. And so biblical preaching helps people truly worship God, and ideally, the better the preaching, the better the singing should be. John Stott, who was one of my favorite preachers, still is. I love his commentaries. He wrote a little book about preaching uh, called Between Two Worlds. But listen to what he says here about the connection between preaching and singing. He said, the word and worship belong indissolubly to each other. All worship is an intelligent and loving response to the revelation of God. Therefore, acceptable worship is impossible without preaching. For preaching is making known the name of the Lord, and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. The two cannot be divorced. Indeed, it is their unnatural divorce which accounts for the low level of so much contemporary worship. Our worship is poor because our preaching is poor, but when the Word of God is expounded in all of its fullness and the congregation begins to glimpse the glory of the living God, they bow down in solemn awe and joyful wonder before His throne. 
It is preaching which accomplishes this, the proclamation of the word of God and the power of the spirit of God. And so if solemn awe and joyful wonder, as Stott says, don't characterize our church when we sing together, then there's a huge disconnect somewhere because I don't believe that we have a lack of spirit-empowered preaching. I hope you would agree with that. (laughs) And if there is a lack of awe and wonder and joy and enthusiasm in our singing, it may be, it may be that you're not truly saved. Could be. Or more likely, it may be you've lost the joy of your salvation. It may not be that you're not saved. It may just simply be be you've lost the joy of your salvation. We were talking a little bit about that the last couple weeks, right? Leaving your first love, it's essentially the same thing as losing the joy of your salvation. Two sides of the same coin. What do we mean when we say you, you've lost the joy of your salvation? It's mentioned, by the way, David in Psalm 51, he prayed, Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. Obviously, his sin against the Lord and, and, and hiding that sin had just sucked the, the spiritual life right out of him. It, it had stolen, it robbed him of joy. But what, is it, what does it mean to lose the joy of your salvation? Well, I think it simply means you've gotten over your salvation. You've gotten over it. You've lost a sense of awe and wonder about the gospel. The good news of salvation in Christ no longer amazes you. It no longer makes your soul sing with joy. Again, have you ever asked yourself why? You sing? Have you ever analyzed how you sing? My conclusion is this, that we sing because God created us to sing and he saved us to sing. Even unbelievers sing. I mean, think about how music plays such a huge role and and is such a, a, a huge part of our culture. Every culture around the globe, singing, music. Why? Well, because we were created to be musical creatures. We're, we're, we're wired to sing and to enjoy music. But more importantly, I think we're saved to sing. And when God saves us, he puts a, he puts a song in our heart. That quote that Chris mentioned, that, that singing is a, is a reflection of, of new life. And if you have new life in Christ, you have a new song in your heart. In other words, you, you probably grew up singing, even if you weren't a Christian. You sang in all sorts of different contexts. Even if it was just in the car driving on the road to the radio, you were singing along with the radio, right? You sang, but now you sing, and the only thing that's changed is it's, it's, the subject is different. You're not singing about whatever you were singing about before. Now you're singing about Christ. You're singing about the gospel. 
And I think how we sing is an indication of how grateful we are that God saved us and how great we think the gospel is. And this is, uh, I think, a convicting thought, at least for me personally. Just, just consider if an unbeliever walked in here this morning and just observed us as we sang, listened to us as we sang, would they get a sense of the greatness of the gospel by our gratefulness and gladness in the gospel? See, our, our gratefulness, our, our gladness for the gospel shows, reveals the greatness of the gospel. If we're not that grateful, we're not that glad about the good news of salvation, then why would anybody else think it's great? I don't need this. Some of you are thinking probably, well, you're making a huge generalization here, Ken, because I'm, I'm really not that expressive. I am a proud member of the frozen chosen. Right? I, I just kind of a little more staid and, you know, I don't get really excited about much of anything and well, that may be true. You might be a little more subdued in your personality. I get that. I tend to be the same way. But how do you respond when your favorite baseball player hits a walk-off home run and your team wins? Do you just kind of sit there in the stands going, oh, that was cool? Or when your favorite football team, right, scores the... The, the touchdown in, in the sudden death overtime. Great. I'm glad I watched this game. It was really, really fun to watch. Or, you know, the, the, the guy hits the buzzer beater at the end of the... I mean, you go... Most of us, right? We, we express our gladness. Even if we typically are more quiet and mild-mannered, we, we, we yell and we scream and we jump up and down and we wave our hands and... And yet when we come to church, you can barely hear us sing. We stand there motionlessly and emotionlessly mumbling the words of the songs. The question is, what's wrong with this picture? I mean, are we really more excited about sports than we are about our salvation? See, when we come to together as a church for corporate worship. We're coming into the presence of God and we need to rise to the occasion. And that doesn't mean we have to necessarily raise our hands and jump up and down and dance all around, but at least we should lift the, raptor, lift the rafters with our singing. No one should ever be able to mistake our worship service for a funeral service. Did somebody die this week that I didn't know about? Why are we all so, Right? We gather to celebrate who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. There, there should be a, a, a glad, festive, joyful air about what we do. We were commenting as couples as we were kind of debriefing and uh, what we were encouraged by, what we were challenged by, how we were impressed by the, what we experienced together and one of the things we all agreed on that we appreciate about the Gettys is our music is very festive. 
It's very celebratory. It all kind of sounds like an Irish jig, right? That's part of it. That's very celebratory when you think of the Irish, right? They're just always dancing and partying and just having a good old time, right? But there was just this, this festive celebration spirit about the whole week. And we thought, how appropriate. That, that's, that's how it should be. When God's people get together, we are celebrating the gospel. And according to God's word, that's how it's always been with God's people and how it always will be. And if you just do a quick survey of the scriptures, we see why we should sing and how we should sing, which is one of the clearest indications of of how grateful we are for what God has done for us in Christ and how glad we are for the gospel. And so with the time we have left, I want to just run through the scriptures. I guess this is the weekend for going from cover to cover, Kyle, right? The kingdom of God, right? From Genesis to Revelation. Let's look at singing from not Genesis, but Exodus to Revelation. And so let's look first of all at singing in the Old Testament. Uh, Turn to Exodus 15. Exodus 15, and this is the first of, of, of countless numbers of songs that the nation of Israel sang in response to being saved, rescued, delivered by God from all sorts of nations and all sorts of terrible situations. I mean, they were a singing nation. It's like they were singing all the time. And so really at the, at the, the birth of the nation, if you will, the, the moment of their greatest deliverance from Egypt, they were enslaved to, to, to the Egyptians and Moses delivered them uh, by the hand of God, or God delivered them through the hand of Moses. And the very first thing they did on the shores of the Red Sea This is uh, Exodus chapter 15. This is after Pharaoh had pursued uh, the Israelites and they just barely got out of, right? The the Israelites had just barely stepped foot out of the Red Sea when here comes Pharaoh and all of his chariots and that's when God sent the waters back and and crashed and and destroyed uh, all of the the Pharaoh and his enemies or his army. And this is how they respond. Exodus 15, verse 1, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. Look down at verse 20. Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, which would be like the tambourine, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing, and Miriam answered them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. And so the most natural expression from those who had been delivered from slavery in Egypt was to sing, which obviously is a great picture for us of what should our natural response be after being delivered from sin and Slavery to Satan is to sing. During the days of the judges, there was singing. Judges chapter 5. Judges chapter 5, we see Deborah and Barak, two judges who worked together to deliver the nation of Israel from the Canaanites. And this is 
the song that Deborah and Barak sang. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinamon, sang on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteer, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers, I to the Lord. I will sing, I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. And so again, they were thanking the Lord for his deliverance, rescuing them. Of course, we know David was probably the most well-known singer in the Old Testament, responsible for the majority of the Psalms. But look at, it, look at 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 22. This is at the end of his life, after he had been restored to the throne as the king. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. Notice the emphasis on singing about being saved. That's... A common theme in all of the songs of the Old Testament is is we're singing about being saved. It was David who uh, appointed the Levites in 1 Chronicles. Just keep moving ahead a little bit here. 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 6. David appointed the, the tribe of Levi to be the worship leaders. They they were the priestly line. They were the ones who were to lead the singing. Uh, 1 Chronicles 6, verse 31. Now these are those whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord. After the ark rested there, they ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served in their office according to their order. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 4, we see a psalm of thanksgiving. Again, David assigning Asaph. Asaph was another hymn writer, psalm writer of the Psalms. He appointed them to give thanks to the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. This is First Chronicles 16, 8. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises him. Speak of all his wonders. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and the judgments from his mouth. Verses 23 and 24, sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. These were the lyrics of the songs they were singing. How about 1 Chronicles 20? This is a fascinating account. 1 Chronicles chapter 20. Hang on, I think it's 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's somewhere. Yeah, it's Second Chronicles chapter 20. Excuse me. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Here, the king of Judah 
Jehoshaphat, a godly king. God had provided peace for much of his reign. But then along came the Moabites and the Ammonites, and they were threatening to overrun Judah. And so Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat prayed and sought the Lord. And notice verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed his head and with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites, these are the guys that David had appointed to be the song leaders from the sons of Kohathites and the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa and when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. And when they began singing and praising the Lord, excuse me, when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. Can you imagine? You're part of the choir. And uh, Jehoshaphat says, all right, hey, we're going into battle today. And uh, choir, I want you guys up front. You're going to lead the charge. And they're holding their hymn books going, uh, okay, uh, I don't have a weapon. I don't have a sword. Why don't you put the soldiers in front and we'll come up behind them? He said, no, you're going to lead the charge. And God used the worship of his people to destroy the enemy. And they destroyed themselves is what happened. And it, if you read on, it took them three days to, to bring back all the booty, all the, the pillage of what they received the spoil of that battle. But it just shows the, the power of worship. Look at 2 Chronicles 29. 2 Chronicles 29. Here Hezekiah was restoring temple worship. Verse 25, he then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord. This is 2 Chronicles 29, verse 25, he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, with lyres, lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. For the command was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Verse 30, just look down. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. There was already a, a hymnody being established, a collection of hymns written by David and Asaph and others. And of course, that was a reference to the Psalms. We, have, we, we know them today as the Psalms, which is really the hymn book of the Bible. It's the Bible's hymn book. There's a reason why we read through the Psalms on, on Sunday morning. It's just, it's such a natural place to go in God's word when we come together to worship and we hear David and Asaph and others just proclaiming the greatness of God, glorying in the goodness of God, the loving kindness of God, the faithfulness of God. It just always seems to fit, doesn't it? And so you've got the psalmist and we could spend lots of time reading psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm extolling us 
to worship the Lord. It's sing with joy, exemplifying what it looks like. So, so not only are we extolled by the Psalms, we're exhorted by the Psalms, but we're given an example by the Psalms. What does that look like? What does it sound like? Maybe just turn to one Psalm, Psalm 107. Psalm 107, verse 17. This Psalm is about the Lord delivering Israel from the land of exile and the author of this psalm likens exile to various challenging situations in life and here in verse 17 he likens it to um, being afflicted and uh, being in a place of of death. Notice he says, verse 17, fools because of their rebellious way. He's talking about the nation of Israel, that we had rebelled against the Lord, and because of their iniquities were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word, and he healed them and delivered them from their destructions. So it's a very vivid picture, not only of being rescued from exile in Babylon, this is a beautiful picture of our salvation in Christ, is it not? And what was the result? Verse 21, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. It's the only right response. It's the natural expression of a heart that's been redeemed. And delivered and saved. Quickly in the New Testament, we don't necessarily need to look at each one of these passages because I think you'll remember them. Um, We know, first of all, that Jesus sang with his disciples. It says in Matthew 26, 30, Mark 14, 26, after they uh, shared the Lord's Supper together. After he instituted the ordinance of communion, it says they sang what? They sang a hymn, and they went off to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. You'll remember from our study of Philippians that Paul and Silas were arrested for preaching um, their first visit there in Philippi, and they were thrown into the dungeon, and at midnight, what were they doing? They were singing. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 15 talks about how we should sing with the spirit and the mind. He's talking about the, the spiritual gifts and, 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 and the worship in the church. And in verse uh, 15, he says, what is then the outcome? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind. Again, there is the, uh, the, the worshiping God in spirit and in truth with the head and the heart. Can't have one without the other. If you have all head, just a bunch of biblical knowledge, you're probably going to just sit there and go, right? And no heart. If you have all heart and no Bible, you're going to be charismatic, crazy, and sing all sorts of stuff that aren't even biblical. And it's just going to be one big emotional experience. Not rooted in the Word of God. So you have to have both. James tells us, In chapter 5, verse 13 of James, he says that we are to sing praises if we're cheerful. If we're cheerful, you should be singing. You should be singing. And then, of course, we know 
from the book of Revelation that heaven is filled with singing. Heaven is filled with singing. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders uh, a lamb standing as if slain. Of course, that is a reference to Christ having seven horns and seven eyes, and which were seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to be our God, to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then quickly look at Revelation 15. Revelation 15, verse 2. Here John's describing a scene in heaven. He's painting a picture of heaven for us. And he says, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. These are the martyrs uh, during the time of the tribulation. And they sang the song of who? Moses. The bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb. Where did singing begin, by the way? In Exodus chapter 15, it was the song of who? The song of Moses on the shores of the Red Sea. And now in heaven, on the shores of this glassy sea, they're singing the same song. It just comes full circle. And again, it's rejoicing in. It's reveling in. It's resting in our salvation, our deliverance, that we've been redeemed. One last passage we'll look at. Chris already mentioned these verses. Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. They're real close to each other. Maybe just stick your finger in each one of those places. But here we have a biblical theology of worship or music, if you will. Sometimes we, we have to be careful calling, uh, equating music with worship as if, again, this isn't worship. Because we're not singing. Worship includes singing and preaching. And by the way, everything else you do in life. Right? That we're to be living sacrifices. Um, and so we should be worshiping. Our life is, a, is worship. But here's a biblical philosophy or theology of music. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And then flip over to Colossians, and, and Paul said something very similar, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, and this is really our theme verse for the music ministry here at Lakeside, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. What is that, the word of Christ? Well, it's the teachings about Christ and the teachings of Christ that are recorded in the scriptures, we could just simply say it's the word of God. Let the word of God richly dwell within your heart. Listen, the best way to do that, to have the word of Christ richly dwell in your heart, 
is to let it permeate every nook and cranny of your life. That's what it means when he says richly dwell within you. He's, he's talking about, hey, let the word of God take up residence in you. Let, let it make its home in you. Let God's word have the run of your residence, the run of your house, the run of your life. And when our hearts are soaked, our minds are saturated, marinated, if you will, in the word of God through reading it and hearing it and memorizing it and meditating on it and obeying it, then it becomes so deeply implanted in our hearts that it affects the flavor of our lives. It controls how we think and how we respond and what we say and what we do and what we don't say and what we don't do. And when our lives are, are permeated with the word, it will naturally overflow in the following ways. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And when it is doing that, then with all wisdom, you'll teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so you'll be teaching the word, you'll be admonishing the word, and you'll be singing the word. And so every healthy church that gives priority attention to the word of God, there will always be teaching, instruction, counseling, passionate worship. See, all of us have that responsibility to teach others what God has taught us from his word, and, and we need to provide one another wise, godly counsel and we do that by teaching, by counseling, and by singing. And I think this is an aspect we don't often include in this ministry that we have to one another. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to the Lord. Again, the better we know the scriptures, the better we should sing. And I just think there's some, some practical implications here that I just want to point out quickly. First of all, singing is preaching in disguise. Singing is preaching in disguise. It's another way to teach the Word of God. It's, it, 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 of course, if, as long as the, the lyrics are, of the songs are consistent with what the Bible teaches. That's the number one criteria, obviously, of choosing the songs that we sing is are the words biblical? We don't care if it's a hymn, a chorus. We don't care if it's fast or slow. Are the words biblical? Is it an accurate reflection of what the Scripture teaches? More heresy has been introduced into the church over the years through songs than it ever has in sermons because it's something, you're listening to a sermon and you kind of tend to try to, okay, I need to be a good Berean here and I got to make sure when I'm hearing this, but we don't even think, we sing things we don't even think about being a good Berean when it comes to the music we listen to. Is this talking about God or my boyfriend? I'm not sure. Right? I mean, you can kind of discern some songs like, that's kind of shallow because I don't know if it's talking about my, my boyfriend or, or God. And I think it's interesting if you study church history, whenever the Holy Spirit is powerfully moved in the church, the revivals that took place have been accompanied by two things. Powerful preaching and powerful music. The Reformation is a good example. Martin Luther, great preacher, but he introduced hymn singing to the church. The Wesleyan Revival. Charles Wesley wrote some 6,000 hymns. We still sing many of them today. 
You think about the early 1900s with um, uh, the, the likes of D.L. Moody and uh, his evangelistic rallies that he was uh, well known for his, his, his duo. They were a dynamic duo. He, he and Ira Sankey, his music leader, right? Maybe, maybe more of us will remember Billy Graham and George Beverly Shea, right? There was always the, the preacher and the singer when it came to revivals and winning people to Christ. Uh, the Jesus movement in the late 60s and early 70s spawned the, the Maranatha praise music movement that many of us kind of grew up on. And then today we see this modern resurgence of of, of Reformation theology and Calvinism, and you see the ministries of things like the Gospel Coalition and Acts 29, and, and you've got the, the Gettys and Sovereign Grace Music, and uh, you know, they're writing these, these Reformed, Gospel-centered songs. And so again, what are we saying here? That singing is preaching in disguise. Secondly, I think a second implication is that singing has a dual focus. Singing has a dual focus, First and foremost, when we sing, who are we singing to? We're singing to God. We're making melody in our hearts to the Lord. But this text says that at the same time, we are teaching and admonishing one another. So, the implication is that in the same way that singing is preaching in disguise, songs are sermons in disguise. That we preach to ourselves and we preach to those around us. And I'm so thankful that when we began to have conversations with Chris about him possibly coming to uh, be our music minister here at Lakeside, he provided us a, a philosophy or a theology of, of, of music ministry, uh, and we read through it. And one of the things that stuck out to me that I had never really seen or heard articulated as well as he did in his, his little uh, paper that he gave us um, is that this whole idea of singing to one another. Singing together to one another. And, uh, and he, he gets it. He understands that he and the music team are, are not up here performing for us. And they're not even just singing for us. Their job is to lead us in singing to God and to each other. And when we understand this, this, this will help us avoid some of the common errors, I think, that, that go on today in church services around the world. And that is this, that, that because you're sitting there and I'm standing here on a stage, you consider yourself by nature the audience, don't you? Whenever we sit out there, we go to a show, a movie, write a play, that's where the audience sits and this is where the performers stand and do their thing. And so I'm performing and you're listening, you're, you're the audience. Well, that couldn't be farther from the truth when you come to church. Who is the audience? God. He's the audience. And we're all the performers, if you will, hopefully not performing hypocritically, right? But we're the actors, we're the singers, and we are here to honor and praise the Lord. And so we need to keep that in mind. We're not here to be entertained. Sit back and then, that's why a lot of people go to church, you know, after church they go to dinner, go to lunch, and and they have roast preacher, they have roast music minister, right? Did you like those songs? Did you, why? They're critiquing. We're just, we naturally critique and give reviews and go on Yelp and say, that was a good restaurant or wasn't a good restaurant, right? We, why? It's all about us. It's not about us. Whether we liked it or didn't like it. It's about, did God like it? 
Did God like the worship today? If God were to review our worship today, what would he say? So that's one misconception. The other one is, and I think this is becoming more common today, and I don't know if you've even thought about this before, but, or you maybe heard this, but there's this idea when you come to church and you, during the worship time, and there's some churches that do this, and it's not necessarily wrong or sinful to do this, but they turn all the lights off, right? And, and, and all the spotlights are up here on the stage and it's all dark and, and it's, and it's kind of like this, this they're, they're trying to create this experience that you're the only one there. And so let's turn off the lights so we can't see anybody else. And in fact, sometimes you hear them say, well, just draw a box around yourself, right? And just, it's just you and the Lord here this morning. Well, that sounds spiritual, and, uh, and it helps when you can't see anybody, right? But according to the Bible, we're supposed to be singing to one another. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, that's kind of awkward to think about if I told you next time we sing, turn and look at the person next to you and sing whatever we're singing. You know, what, what, you know uh, a mighty fortress is our God. What are we doing? We're admonishing, we're exhorting, we're reminding one ourselves that, that, that God is a mighty fortress. But you know what? My neighbor needs to be reminded of that as well. The person sitting, my wife needs to be reminded. I need to be reminded. My kids, so I'm just going to sing it to them this morning. Because they need to be, right? We're singing to each other and reminding one another of the truths of God's word. And so while it's important that we remember, ultimately it's between us and the Lord, and that's all that matters, right? This is called corporate worship for a reason. Hey, go home in your closet and draw a little box around yourself and have some sweet time just one-on-one with the Lord. But when you come to church, this is a corporate event. This is a corporate experience that we're to enjoy together. Notice one other thing really quickly. Both of these verses in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul makes it clear that, that, that singing was an issue of the heart, with all your heart or uh, in your heart. It's all about the heart. And so our singing has not much to do with the quality of our voices or the band or the choir or the hymn or the chorus or the guitar or the organ or the drums, right, which tends to be the focus in so many churches, it's about the external things. It has everything to do with what's going on in our hearts. And spirit-filled, Bible-saturated people sing with all their heart. They could never be excuse, accused of, of heartless, apathetic worship. They couldn't be the, like the Pharisees that Jesus said, Hey, listen, you honor me with your lips, but you're what? Your heart is far from me. What did Jesus say? The things that proceed out of the mouth come from where? The heart. So whatever in our hearts is going to come out of our mouths and how we sing is a reflection of what's going on in our hearts. And so if our singing is lame, it's evidence that we either don't have a song in our heart, again, maybe not saved, or we lack the joy of our salvation. 
You think about, and I would confess over these, I've, I've been guilty of this. Joyful, joyful, we adore. Yawning in the middle of a silence. <laughs> you were thinking about this. Or, when I survey the wondrous cross. How much longer do we have to go, right? Like, are you really surveying the wondrous cross? Or are you worried about what time is lunch, right? I just added that in right now because some of you are looking at the clock now, right? You get the point, right? We, 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 we just got to think about these things. And I think when a, when a person's heart is, is grateful for all that God has done for them in Christ and they're genuinely glad about the gospel, they will sing passionately. They'll sing loudly. They'll sing joyfully. And there may be times, honestly, where you might not sing. You might just sit there and, and, and meditate on the lyrics that are being sung around you. Don't be judgmental or critical if you look over and see somebody not singing. Now, it's one thing if they're just kind of like, you know, but they may just be having a moment there where they, they need to be encouraged and challenged and let the truths of those lyrics sink deep into their heart and is ministering to them in a way that to hear other people sing those lyrics, they needed to hear that this morning. And they, needed to, they just needed to listen to it. And so there's a time and a place just to sit and, or stand and be quiet and be blessed by the, by the truth that's being sung all around you. It's a heavenly moment. Listen, not all of us can sing well, but we all can sing with all of our hearts and make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Listen, bottom line, it's not about being a great singer. It's not about how great of a singer you are. It's how great a Savior Jesus is. And he's worthy of our passionate worship. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, cause our mouths to joyfully sing praise to your great name. I pray that you would grant us sincere, genuine gladness for the gospel that will accurately represent the greatness of the gospel to a lost and dying world who, who desperately needs to experience its transforming power. But if they don't, if it doesn't appear to them that we're very excited about it or very thankful for it or we don't think it's that great, then why would they be intrigued to learn more about this great gospel? And so thank you for the reminder that you gave me this week, that, Lord, you gave Chris this week and our wives to... This, this vital role that, that singing, not just singing, but congregational singing, plays in the life of this church. And, and not just in the life of this church, but in our own personal lives. How blessed we are to have been created by you, musical creatures, and then on top of that, being saved by you, and you put a new song in our hearts. I pray we never lose the, the joy the enthusiasm, the excitement, the gratitude, the, the awe, the wonder of what you've accomplished in our lives through the person and work of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.